Influence is a structure of probably three pillars or foundations, ethos, pathos, and logos, which translate to your credibility appeal, your logical appeal, and your emotional appeal. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So we just want to welcome all of you who are joining us for the very first time and just say welcome to the Kelly family. We exist for you. So whether that's you're wrestling with an organizational leadership question, you're not sure what to do, um, or you simply would love to ask one of our faculty, get some of their advice on a specific topic, or you simply know of a guest that would make a great interview for our show, you can get a hold of us here at the ROI Podcast at ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. All right, so when we think of leadership, there are many traits that kind of define what a good leader is. We hear servant leadership, we hear, you know, leading, setting examples, leading by action, you know, but there's definitely one trait that I would argue, and I'm sure a lot of other people will argue, that is synonymous with leadership that you cannot, they cannot exist exclusively. That is influence. Having an influence as a leader, I mean, leadership is influencing. I mean, you're influencing cultures. You're having to influence organizations. You're having to influence teams, how decisions are made. It's all about bringing an influence to an organization. So today we are joined by Brenda Bailey-Hughes and Tatiana Kolovu, both senior lecturers for the Kelly School of Business who specialize in executive coaching and organizational communication. Ladies, just want to welcome you to the show. So let's start things off right right out the gate. Uh, Brenda, I want to start with you. What are some of the foundational skills that you need in order to have influence? Influence is a structure of probably three pillars or foundations. And we're, Tatiana will jump in with the Greek terms in these because she's mm-hmm. our Greek representative. We, we laugh and say that her uncle Aristotle taught her these. So the, the pillars aren't brand new. This is not recent literature, but really ancient thinking and and depth of thought, but replicated again and again in current research, we've discovered that ethos, pathos, and logos, which translate to your credibility appeal, your logical appeal, and your emotional appeal, those are the foundations of good influence. So you show me a leader who can speak to my head, logical appeal, make it make sense, who can prove that uh, he or she is a reliable, trustworthy person, that's that credibility appeal, and who can not just talk to my head, but also kind of get me in the belly, get me in my heart, pull my heartstrings, then I will show you the leader who has influential uh, abilities out, out, just crazy, crazy ability. Tatiana, you know, going into this idea that, you know, influence uh, is being one of these foundational bedrocks for leadership, you know, there's also this component of of this trust that has to be Mm -hmm. built, you know, so talk about, you know, where does trust come into Mm. building influence as a leader? Um, Matt, we, we could go on for the entire afternoon here because there's so many pieces that uh, components that go into building trust with others. If you think for yourself, 
what made you trust a person that you worked with or what made you lose your trust of a person that you work with. It's hard to gain and it's so easy to lose. And going back to what Brenda was mentioning, for us to maintain and be consistent, people that are trusted are ones that are consistent with their word, consistent with their actions, that are caring much about others uh, that are around them and are uh, on ongoing making efforts to create those relationships that show that they're listening and that they care. But trust, again, takes time and uh, it has to be very mindful or very thoughtful of the person who's trying to build it, to do it. It's hard to uh, to build, as I said, and it's easy to miss. It Of those three pillars of the credible appeal, logical appeal, and emotional appeal, Tatiana and I argue that the credibility appeal mm-hmm. takes precedence, that without it, the other two sort of fade away. So if even if I have all of the stats and the evidence in the world, that's logical appeal, great arguments, great data. If you don't trust me as a person, you'll look at all that data and just kind of blow it off. You'll be like, eh, yeah, you can make stats, say anything, blah, blah, blah. So we always argue that you've got to start with that credibility piece. And then Tatiana used the word consistency, and that's certainly mm -hmm. part of the credibility equation. But but we don't, we, when we teach credibility, we don't stop with consistency, which you'll see some authors define that way. It's a piece of that puzzle, but you could be consistent and still not be trustworthy. So Matt, you would be consistent if you came into the office every day and, and just told me what a jerk I was and smacked mm-hmm. me in the back of my head. You know, that's consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know you're reliable. I can rely on you to call me a jerk and hit me in the mornings, but... <laughs> but it's not trustworthy. So consistency is just a part of the equation. Back on what Brenda said about um, ethos or the credibility appeal, sometimes it's really your brand. It's what walks into the room before you do. It's the name that you carry. You know, as we get older in our business careers, we kind of have a, we have an aura around us that's based on things we've done or haven't, uh, on actions, on projects we followed through. We have a brand. And in today's day and age, also that brand carries over in the whole virtual world. When someone looks us up on our LinkedIn profile or gets a message and an email from us, that trustworthiness is so much of it is unspoken. Some people can decide they trust us before they even meet us because they they've heard of us or they've uh, they've seen our work. So it, it's something trust is something that, uh, as we said, is embedded in the credibility appeal and constantly needs to to be attended to. And I think that's an interesting point because, you know, a lot of uh, studies suggest, I mean, within the first few moments, mm. I mean, seconds of seeing milliseconds. someone, milliseconds, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. kind of make an initial judgment or assessment if that trust is even there to begin with. So sure. I want to I want to ask a question because you know obviously with leadership there comes a lot of mistakes a lot of failures a lot of wrong decisions and I would even think um, a lot of uh, lost trust with those decisions that maybe just rub someone the wrong way so as an organizational leader who may has who has made failures I mean we all have how do you begin to rebuild some of that trust? Because like you said, it's it's hard to gain and easy to lose. So how do you, especially after you've lost it, it's even harder you know, to mm-hmm. rebuild. So how does a leader start to rebuild or begin? Where do they begin to start that process? Well, one, I think that it's important to remember that 
the way we handle that recovery process for whatever error or mistake that we've made can actually further our credibility. A colleague was just sharing some research with us about, um, help me if I get this tangled up, Tatiana, but uh, people who have uh, construction projects done on their home, which is interesting because Matt's doing some construction right now. Mm -hmm. He was telling us about this. So people, when we're doing some construction, if they have uh, contractors in and the contractors mm. say, um, you know, we're going to be done by this date and everything's going to be great. And it is, people give them a, a you know, a, a, let's say a four out of a five on a satisfaction survey. If they had a little punch list of things that weren't quite, quite right in the project. And so the errors, the mistakes that we make as leaders were, were made and the people complain, the customers complain and say, Hey, you didn't do X, Y, and Z. Right. And they're quick to fix it. And they're apologetic then they will actually get the five out of five on the customer service survey. So I, don't, I think we need to be careful with that kind of research that we don't say, oh, I should intentionally have a blunder so that I get the recovery points. But I, I do think it's important to know that we are going to mess up, as, as you pointed out, Matt, and, and it's okay because that the way we recover from the mistakes can still completely solidify our leadership credibility. Matt, we do an activity with our MBA students where they watch uh, apology videos of CEOs, and they're analyzing the nonverbals, all the nonverbals, uh, from stance to gestures to eye contact to 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 facial expressions of showing um, remorse or or apology, and then the words that they say and what the context of all of that is. And it's so true that trust, where you can build, as Brenda said, that trust in your recovery. Uh, email, letter, memo, video, if you are vulnerable to say, I messed up, sometimes that increases the trust level. You're transparent. If a leader says, look, we are in hard times. I don't know what this, where this is going. I'm also struggling with this. It's okay to do that. In fact, you build more trust. And finally, being sincere about it, not doing it, as Brenda said, not messing up so you can gain points on, me on making up for it. But people can read through that very, very quickly. Initially, when you meet someone you don't know, it's that likability factor. Do I decide if I'm even going to listen? But when you know someone for a while, you tend to, and you've invested in that relationship, whether it's organizational or personal, you're willing to kind of see how they recover. And at times, you really can turn things around and, and have people trust you even more. A sincere apology has a few absolutes. There is an actual apology. There's some point where someone accepts that responsibility to say, I am sorry, or I goofed up, or I, this was a mess. You know, there's this, there's this self-accountability about it. There's an actual apology. You hear those words. Uh, another element of a good apology is, here's what we're doing to make sure it doesn't happen again, or here's what I'm doing to make sure it doesn't happen again. And here's how I'm trying to to make up for any pain that you experienced because of my goof up this time. And those three things being in an apology make it go a lot longer. A lot mm. longer. You can't just blurt it out. You got to think about it a little bit and be strategic. It's worth the investment. And I think, you know, for a lot of organizational leaders, there's this overwhelming sense, or I guess, uh, you know, there's, there's fear or there's worry. And we all know, you know, what 80 or 90% of all worry never comes true to begin with. And so for, mm -hmm. for, you know, a lot of organizational leaders who screw up or m mess something up, make a mistake, there's this kind of this, oh no, 
what are people going to think of me as a leader now? Uh, they look up to me as someone to lead. I can't be making mistakes. When in reality, it's those leaders we see who are open, who do come with you know, palms up, just authentic, are the ones that have this, you know, you can you can feel it in the organization like, oh, there's a relatability. He screws up. He's human just like me. He's not some guy on this, you know, pedestal. Wow. Okay. I can I can relate with him more. Um and so I, I don't know if you guys want to speak mm-hmm. speak on just that yeah, overcoming of, you know, when all of your urges as an individual says, no, like you can fix this. Don't expose yourself. Don't, don't be Mm. open, but like clam up and we're going to get through this. Well, I think that it's not just yourself that is sending all those messages of cover it up. Don't, don't look vulnerable, but you also have sometimes uh, we, Tatiana and I are in our consulting have seen legal departments duke it out with leaders in the organization over, do not apologize, do not embrace the accountability, do not take any sort of responsibility for this. And so there is this fine legal line that you're going to have to balance in in sort of public apologies, I think. Again, we have found that those three pieces of the apology, an actual apology, making good on on making up for it and, and explaining how you'll uh, not make the same mistakes in the future, those still tend to play well in the public realm. But, as, but especially in, in those more one-on-one or, or leader-to-team kinds of conversations where we, we don't have that sort of exterior fishbowl effect going on. Absolutely. What are the messages we need to tell ourselves to talk ourselves off that ledge that says, I can't be vulnerable. I can't look like a goof up. I think one of them, at least that strikes me is to remind myself that if I want my team to be creative and innovative, they have to know that making a mistake is okay. Mm-hmm. And who better to model that than the leader? If, if I'm mm-hmm. accepting blame when I've goofed up, it says, so you can too, and we can be innovators this way. I had one more um, thought on the flip side of apologizing is also being willing to take risks without knowing the outcome or without being sure, 100% sure. We have so much uncertainty avoidance at times and the bigger an organization gets, we are not willing to take a risk because we haven't tried it before. We don't know what will happen. And if you're that leader, then everyone will act like you as well. And you'll end up in an organization that plays it safe, but as Brenda said, may not be as innovative or may not be um, a, a thought leader because they've always done things a certain way. So a big part of that uh, influence outwards would be uh, being able to take risks and being okay with it. So let's move on to, okay, we have this some, some sort of credibility and trust established as a leader, whether it's rebuilt or built for the first time, because I think a lot of these principles, regardless whether you're trying to rebuild or build initially, um, they mm-hmm. kind of go either, they fall in either category. And I want to get to, okay, so there's that head argument. You know, you want to win people logically as a leader. You want to win them with with numbers and data and, and the facts. Where is that line or where do leaders start to, you know, get enough info out that you're winning them over? But there's also that temptation of going overboard with all the truth and the numbers where you just kind of like lose people because there's just too much out there. So I have to know how much my audience already knows about this topic. What are their potential objections or concerns about the change I'm trying to initiate or, or whatever the, the, the influence I'm trying to have? They, they, if I've really thought through, here's where their concerns are. 
here's what will make them say yes, here's what would make them say no, here's what would get my team to be resistant to this. If I've given that very careful thought and consideration and, and, and done the homework to get feedback from people about that, then I know which pieces of information are necessary to overcome that data or that potential objection or that concern. And I can just leave the rest of it out because I've mm-hmm. spoken directly to that specific need in my specific audience. And that might change if I'm trying to influence Tatiana to do something and I know what makes her tick and it's a little different than what makes you tick, Matt. I'll tell her one thing and, and tell you another, not different messages as in I'm changing the story, but I'll pick different pieces of relevant data for each of you, depending on what makes you uh, kind of go, ooh, or even just your communication style. You're a numbers guy. So man, I got to get out the stats and the facts and the statistics for you. Tatiana, I know her, she's going to be moved when I bring a story in. So I'm going to use a story example when I'm trying to influence her. The tricky part, Matt, is when leaders walk into a room and they know they have a mixed audience or they do know that they have won certain people over and there are others that are uh, that are the hard ones to sell to. And in this case, we talk about quite often influence, not just being a one-time show. You're not just doing it when you're speaking with the PowerPoint on. It's a campaign. You start much earlier. I come from a culture where um, when you want to influence, you get started early on. And who's going to be at the meeting? I'm Greek. And we do a lot of sort of the meeting before the meeting or the meeting after the meeting. And what did you think? And it takes more time, but it's a little bit more strategic. And you're looking at who is in there. And at the end of the day, when everyone sits and hears an idea, they may, the the ones that are the hard nuts to crack, they've heard it before a little bit, and it's not a surprise to them. Or someone they are they are uh, respectful of they they mention it and so they're more uh, influenced in a positive way so you just have got to be strategic again and not assume sameness I always say that because you know it you can't assume that they will also know it or think the same way and I want to you know you brought up something that's very interesting is that you know you, when you come into a, that mixed room and the mixed audience you know you're going to win some but at some at the end of the day too there's just people you're never going to win over mm-hmm. with a decision you know so mm-hmm. as a leader the, that I think that's a good question that I think people might wrestle with is when is it that point when you um, decide that, okay, you know what? I know I'm not going to win everyone over, so I should stop trying and stop trying to beat the dead horse. You know, instead take the people who are excited and run run with them. You know, what what where is that point that you just kind of have to just say, okay, we just got to move in this direction? H- have you read our course evaluations, Matt? I think that, I'm kidding. It's <laughs> we hard. It, it, everybody, we, yeah, we cannot. I mean, that's what we say. I think, I think you know something uh, we didn't tell you, but Brenda, I'll let you jump I, on that. Well, I do think it's interesting that uh, earlier on, we can, we can admit that we may not be the influencer for everyone. Mm. So I think it's important for us to think about who does, who is the influencer for those who may not hear it well from me. I, I don't have to be the messenger all the time. I just need to get this done. I just need to get the buy-in. I just need to get something accomplished. And so if Tatiana turns out to have more influence and be more of an informal influencer with my direct reports than I am, I just have to get her on board and let her win everybody else over. So that's where you start looking at early adopters, who are your informal influencers, and you're really 
uh, making your pitch to them and letting them do some of the heavy lifting with the rest of your team. And then you get to practice what we're preaching of. If we want people to trust us, now here we are having to lead. How are we going to trust someone else to be the messenger and let go mm-hmm. of our control, which so many leaders have such a hard time doing? And absolutely, that that reciprocity factor with trust is real. If I don't trust you, why would you trust me and vice versa? So mm-hmm. really... And, and, and yeah, so you're, you're absolutely onto something. Next, you know what I want to move into. Okay. So we have the head now, now there's that emotion, that heartbeat, you know, where you get people, as you said earlier on, like get them in the belly, you know, so where do leaders start to not become, because this one is, I think is a little more tricky because you can speak and there's that balance where it becomes very disingenuous or becomes too mm-hmm. over the top or it becomes like, Oh, he's mm-hmm. just doing it for the flash or look at him or her you know so where is that line with how do we lead from the heart and how do we win that heart Mm. without being too much or too disingenuous i have one word for you and that's authenticity that if you are authentic with your message i even see many leaders quite often that they're not going to be the 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 most emotional uh um uh speakers or they're not going to to, to pull the, the ver- best visual language or have the stories, but they are who they are and they are vulnerable in front of others when they say, I'm not sure, or I want this to happen. And they're their authentic selves. We all go back to, as you said, smelling sort of the fake stuff. And if someone is authentic and has uh, and means well initially, and maybe with a little bit of coaching and advice from from trusted advisors, they have to go to that first. People will will believe you if they know that you're being your authentic self. If you're speaking a different language or all of a sudden, we see this sometimes with students, is to us, the faculty, they're very uh, proper and they're very formal. And then they turn to their colleagues in the classroom and they may not be as nice. And that people notice that, that we've got to be consistent in our authenticity as leaders. I think it's an important point that be, using emotional appeal doesn't mean that I myself am acting super. It's, I'm not weeping tears or leading the parade necessarily. Emotional appeal has a lot to do with aligning on values. So once I understand what you truly value, if I can take whatever it is I'm trying to influence you or the team to believe, to do, to buy into, and I can show you how that furthers your values, how it aligns to your values, that in and of itself is an emotional appeal because your values are emotional to you. And I think it brings up an interesting point, Tatiana, you were referencing. I mean, you don't have to be this extrovert or this extravagant, eccentric speaker. Mm-mm, and mm-mm. I think I think for a lot of people who find themselves are more, maybe align more on the introverted side or just very, just kind of, I just take it as it is and I'm just, I just speak. I don't really, they don't feel like they're that emotional person there it can bring up some well I guess I'm just not going to win them at the heart so you know I want to double down a little bit more into that authenticity part and how important that is no matter if you are that eccentric energized you know person who can get in front of a room full and not sweat or you're that person who cannot stand you know doing having some sort of leading a conversation but yet you still are charged to lead Brenda, we've done a lot of work with introversion and extroversion and uh, being able to to lead in the workplace with those. I'll, I'll speak from 
uh, I'll, I'll lead to Brenda to say, what about the introverts that may think I can't just be the sage on the stage? Yeah, so the, the work that we've done is because Tatiana and I partner on lots of projects and consulting work, and I'm an introvert, a high level introvert, and she is as about as far on the extroverted scale as you could get. And so a lot of our partnership has been figuring out how to work with each other and to leverage both the strengths that come of introversion and the strengths that come of extroversion. And one of those strengths certainly is, is a recognition that her leadership style is going to look very different than mine as an introvert. I'm much more likely to lead behind the scenes. Um, I'm going to I'm more comfortable with one-on-one conversations than one to many. (laughs) And so I'm going to have those behind the scenes conversations that may never culminate in a big team meeting or a big, departmental meeting. Uh, I think that that introversion uh, leadership strength is in introspection. So I process internally, which means that some of that audience analysis that we talked about is going to come very quickly and easily for me because I'm not going to open my mouth until I've had time to really process through who am I talking to, what will be motivating to them. On the other hand, an extrovert leads a little differently. Tatiana, I'll let you have the extrovert piece then. Mm-hmm. I think they have to be careful because as you see in our balance too, it would be easy for me to start talking, but I say, I'll let you lead because I know that my tendency is to jump in and keep you still processing uh, and and not getting a chance to speak. And that happens. Leaders need to know again, what are some of the temperaments and tendencies that they have, self-awareness, and then what happens uh, to be the case in their teams. So my approach may be a little bit more vocal, uh, a little bit more, I'm going to grab the phone and send a message right away, maybe running the risk of saying something that uh, rubs people the wrong way. And then I better apologize if I do that. But it may look a little different, or I may be thoughtful to say I'm having this inclination to a trusted colleague or someone that understands me and the context and say, do you think this is the right thing to do? I've uh, uh, become a lot more, uh, I would say, strategic about doing that, just probably because of making that mistake too many times. Uh, But there's benefits to both. And actually, some leaders may, as Brenda said, maybe that leader is not the person that needs to, to give the message. You see in many companies that there's many people that take the stage that uh, share the meaning of a message or the why we need to make this happen. And they're the experts. The leaders in the company may not be the experts in a certain topic. And that gives them more credibility by bringing in the, the content experts. Tatiana just mentioned credibility or experts that they are the experts. I think circling all the way back to our conversation about trust and credibility, there's two factors that people use to decide if they're going to trust you, Matt. So when I first meet you, I'm going to look at you and decide if you're an expert or not to what Tatiana was just saying. But I'm also going to decide if you're, if you, if you have integrity, if you have warmth or not. So warmth and competency are the two factors that we're looking at. So I have to decide, are you, are you going to do what you said you would do? Are, are you going to have my best interest at heart? Or is this all just about taking care of you when you try to influence me? As well as, does he know what he's talking about? Can he get the job done? Does he have the expertise? So both of those are important to weigh when you're, when you're deciding, do I have credibility with someone on my team? You need to think about it in terms of both, am I an expert in their eyes? And am I warm enough in their eyes? And we have some great stories about clients that we've worked with who 
had one or the other of those just down pat, but they lacked the other. And so they lacked credibility overall. In general. Yeah. You got to have a, mm-hmm. it's gotta, it's mm-hmm. a package deal. It's a package deal, but back to the conversation in the beginning when we started, that first impression comes from warmth. People in those milliseconds decide, do I even want to give you the time to work with you or be on your team or, or want to, to engage? Do I like you or not? It's that likability factor. And some of that, I hate to say, comes from total nonverbals. It could be the way you walk into a room. If you've got your hands full and you're blocking yourself and you're not ready to shake someone's hand, although we can't do too much of that lately, but, or if you, uh, if you, if you're making eye contact or if you go and pull your phone out immediately, it's that warmth and connection that people decide on quickly. It's things we say shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter if I stand up straight or have soup on my shirt or look you in the eye or not, because that's not a true gauge of what's in my head or what my expertise or my heart is all about. But people do use them as proxies in those first milliseconds, as you pointed out. Again, this has been Brenda Bailey Hughes and Tatiana Kolavu, both senior lecturers for the Kelly School of Business, specializing in executive coaching and organizational communication. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.